welcome Angus Fletcher, professor of English at The Ohio State University, also core faculty member of Project Narrative, and to my great honor, one of the core faculty of the Humanities and Cognitive Sciences High School Summer Institute. Welcome, Angus. Thank you so much for having me, Frederick. As you know, you're one of my heroes, so this is kind of you just uh, won a cool teaching award too, so congratulations for that. Yeah, I did. And you know, um, teaching is one of those wonderful things where you get to kind of take credit for the fact that you have these brilliant and amazing students. So I'm happy to take credit for the fact of all the things that they taught themselves and uh, wrap, myself, wrap myself in their achievement. So speaking of students, let's, how in the heck, Angus, did you go from well, actually, a kind of nascent neuroscience degree at the University of Michigan for your Bachelor of Science, to a PhD in literature, right, at Yale, yeah. to teaching at USC and Stanford, and then uh, writing kind of screen, screen, uh, write script writing, screenplay writing for, you know, and then consult. How in the heck, just like, what's your origin story? But I guess... Even let's take a sliver of that. How did you, what's your origin story that led you to storytelling science? So the main thing is I've always been someone who's just been driven by questions as opposed to answers. And I think when you're driven by questions, it just naturally leads you to kind of wander a little bit across off the beaten path and across boundaries and kind of end up in slightly unusual spaces. I started out, I did my undergraduate degree in neuroscience at Michigan. And at the time, scientists were starting to realize that the human brain wasn't very rational and it was driven by all these other things we didn't really understand very well. And one of those things was narrative. We had this incredible power to tell stories and believe stories and plot our lives. And so I wanted to understand how narrative worked better. And I thought it would be a great idea to go get a degree in literature. I didn't realize at the time uh, when I went to Yale that most faculty in literature are actually not that interested in narrative. And so I had a kind of interesting five years um, in which I was interested in narrative and neuroscience, in which very few of my peers were. But I was lucky. I got uh, picked up for a job at Stanford. And while I was at Stanford, I had this idea that I would pick up the phone and reach out to Pixar. And one of the reasons that I did is um, sort of one of the defining things about my career has been my belief that narrative, like the human brain, is a growing, adaptive thing. So I don't believe in universal stories or universal narratives. I believe that stories are very flexible, like our brain, and can constantly help us adapt to new situations, can branch. And I believe that at the end of the day, any one of us can invent a new story, our story. So I thought at the time, Pixar seemed like they were doing that. They were telling innovative stories like Up and Toy Story. So I called them, and it turned out they had this amazing secret for innovative storytelling. And I thought, this is so wonderful. This isn't what people are doing in Hollywood. Someone should share this secret. So I went to USC, the University of Southern California, and tried to become a consultant to Hollywood. And uh, naturally, um, everyone in Hollywood was like, you're a professor, so you're an idiot. We've all been through school. We know you guys don't know anything. <laughs> Get out of our studios. So I was emboldened to write a screenplay at that time to kind of show that this method worked. It won something called the Nickel Award, which is kind of like a baby Oscar for best first screenplay from the Academy. And that launched me on this parallel career screenwriting. And to tell the truth, most of what I do in the industry is consult, um, kind of identifying novels and books like that. But I've been honored to work for some of the biggest people in the business, biggest studios, biggest networks, um, doing some big projects now, which we can talk about if you want. 
Um, but most of that training has helped me grow the theory of narrative. It's helped me kind of get into the nuts and bolts, see how actual storytellers work, meet people who are kind of today's Shakespeare's, um, and use that to kind of grow a little bit narrative theory. Wow. Yeah, we're going to, I'm going to get you in just a little bit here on that, uh, the consulting work that you've been doing. But um, in the meanwhile, let's, uh, let's keep going on this journey. It's time, space, motion, renaissance, narrative theory, cognitive narratology. I'm not even sure that that's kind of a useful category for you. But yeah, well, let's jump in here. Yeah, so I um when I, when I went and did my PhD, I decided to study the Renaissance. And I, I did this for a reason that only a scientist would study the Renaissance. Is I thought to myself, oh, that literature is older, so it must be simpler. And it will be easier to learn. <laughs> because at the time, I thought of literature as kind of, you know, like an evolved thing. I thought, oh, it's a simpler form of life if you go back in time. Um, this idea, as you can imagine, is not very popular with Renaissance thinkers. But it did lead me to the belief that what distinguished the Renaissance and what made it special was not that they rebirthed the Greeks or they, they discovered some kind of, you know, timeless classical knowledge or anything like that, but that it was a time of experiment. And I had the opportunity to study Shakespeare and Shakespeare was not only a very experimental writer, he was constantly trying new things. He actually had a lab in the theater where he could try, he could, run out these experimental stories and see, does this work? Does that work? And that kind of led me to the view that storytelling is itself a kind of experimental science. So it's not the kind of thing that you can sit down with the mathematics and come up with the ideal story. Rather, it's a space for us to be creative and inventive and innovative and try new things. And that's, I think, what Shakespeare did. I think that's why the Renaissance was so successful. And I think, honestly, that's a lot of what we have lost today in storytelling, because a lot of our big industries are governed by a kind of financial caution, where they don't really want to try anything new because that might be too dangerous. And what you then see is a lot of the same old formulas getting trucked out over and over and over again, rather than trying new things, reaching out to the audience and that's not to say new ideas never are out there. I mean, there is enough money to be made in taking risks. That there's always a kind of fringe activity that goes on. But there's not the same dedication to it that I think there was at moments in the Renaissance. And I think that's why the Renaissance is such an exciting period to study, if you're into creativity, because there was just that opportunity then to do almost anything. So just kind of maybe speculating here, would you then go so far as to maybe say that great kind of bursts of creativity in our prehistory history were those moments of basically lab work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I believe is that we're all born scientists. I mean, I think from the, the time that we're a child, we make predictions about the world and we test those hypotheses through action, you know? We don't think of it to ourselves in that way. But our mind is just running plots and stories about possible universes, about possible things that could happen. I mean, that's the kind of story part of our brain. And, you know, we refine those stories and those world models through our experiences. And I think that when you look at moments of enormous human productivity and creativity, that's when societies come together to say, how can we create a space in which people feel empowered to experiment? How can we create a space in which people are not afraid to try new things? How can we create a space in which 
new voices are welcomed in because new voices are always the source of different and alternative ideas. And experiment relies on trust. Experiment can't be created in a culture of fear or a culture that believes there's one right way of doing things or even a culture that believes you know, that, 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 that you are wrong or you're dangerous for, for, for thinking differently. And so I think that cultures that, you know, encourage openness, encourage inclusivity are lab cultures. And, you know, I'm privileged to be at Ohio State, which I think is a, is a kind of lab culture. And I think in the United States, although we're not perfect, I can say as an immigrant, the United States is better than many other cultures have been historically. Um, and certainly Renaissance England, although it was also not perfect, had a little bit of that kind of lab culture too. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally with you on this. So, okay, now we've got like an alpha to omega. I mean, ancient Athens to American Republic. What is the, I mean, I, okay, we understand that like Angus Fletcher is all about kind of the empirical and the kind of the space of knowledge building across cultures, across sciences, but what, um, and of course, completely anti like the idea that creativity comes from some divine inspiration, but what is your research program? Like, what is it? Where are you trying to take us? Well, so this particular book on comic democracies came out of, to talk, to continue what we were just talking about, the belief that democracy is very important for creative innovation and creative storytelling, because you need that space of inclusivity, freedom, equality, but also the belief that democracy is threatened now in our modern world. And this isn't a belief that's obviously unique to me. Um, around the turn of the millennium, there was just a rise of autocratic societies. There's a retrenchment even in the United States in a lot of sort of basic um, democratic practices. And, you know, I, I start to think to myself, well, what is it that nurtures democracy? And how can stories and storytelling help perhaps in their own way nurture democracy? And the conclusion that I arrived at in the book is that we often in the modern world think about democracy in terms of kind of fixed ideals, you know, truth, so on and so forth, that are set forth in the Constitution and other Enlightenment rationalist thinkers. But really, historically, a lot of democracy has been about behaviors, flexible behaviors, and particularly behaviors such as curiosity, openness, tolerance, and those behaviors are things which narratives are incredibly powerful at encouraging. And so this book was basically an attempt to go back through some of the crucial moments in the emergence of democracy and show how authors from the ancient Greek comedians through Frederick Douglass developed these specific storytelling techniques to nurture curiosity, inclusivity, and you know, five other things. And I trace those storytelling uh, devices, not just through literature, but you can find them in the Constitution, in the Declaration of Independence, and all sorts of extraordinary places. And so this book was a little bit uh, sort of a love letter to, to story and the way that it has contributed to democracy, and then hopefully the way that democracy can, can give back and contribute again to story. Teaching. Uh, you've already, we talked about like the sort of great moment, Angus Fletcher being recognized with one of our um, most honored sort of, you know, teaching awards, the Humanities and Cognitive Sciences High School Summer Institute. You teach art of uh, script writing, screenwriting. Gosh, um, what, what if, if you, if, again, like, 
storytelling science, teaching, art of story, but what is the Angus Fletcher kind of trademark? Like, what am I going to kind of walk away thinking, shoot, okay, yeah, I have, now I'm completely rethinking this whole thing. Sure. So, I mean, I'm not sure that I can be credited with making anyone rethink anything because um, most of my life has honestly been learning from other people. But I do think that the one thing that I carry into the classroom with me is the belief that because there are endless opportunities for story, that every student has their own unique story. And so what I focus on in my teaching is not telling students the right way to tell a story. I don't focus on giving them kind of universal archetypes or blueprints or models that I want them to crank out. Instead, what I do is I say to them, okay, what are your favorite stories? What are the stories that have inspired you? Let's look at those stories and then let's see what's unique and different and distinct about those stories, not universal, but special. And then let's take those special things that appeal to you and figure out how we can hybridize them like a crazy mad scientist in his lab blending and mixing different forms of life. And let's figure out what new stories we can grow out of those old forms that you've discovered. So for me, the thing that I'm really most interested in is not just kind of nurturing my students' own distinct voice and storytelling styles, but giving them a method for evolving and growing the stories that they like so that then when they walk out of the classroom, they can continue developing those stories because I believe honestly that our world is in need of new stories. I mean, I believe that when we look around, we don't have answers to a lot of the questions we have. We don't have solutions to a lot of the problems we have. And I think a lot of those answers are contained in plots and narratives and schemes and dreams for the future. And so I kind of consider it my goal not to teach the students anything, but to help unlock the stories that are already there in their heads. Angus, you have, so there are these kind of prototype, say, narratives that we recognize across the globe um, that then have infinite variation. But you do a really interesting exercise of having the students reverse engineer a story. Can you walk us through that in a kind of elevator pitch um, fashion? Sure. Sure. So this, the idea of reverse engineering literature, I wish this was my idea. Unfortunately, it was invented by this guy called Aristotle who lived about 23 centuries ago. But basically what he did is he noticed that when you went to watch a Greek tragedy, it had this profound effect on your mind, a medical effect on your mind. It helped you get rid of certain kinds of fears and it helped stimulate your mind with certain kinds of wonder, which he saw as a kind of spiritual enhancer. And so what Aristotle did is he said, the way to really understand literature is to look at its psychological effect on you. Maybe that effect is medical, maybe it's some other kind of cognitive effect, but identify that effect, pinpoint the moment in the story that has that effect, and then identify the unique story invention that is beneath that effect. And roughly speaking, there are kind of four broad kinds of story invention, which I teach my students. If, if you were a narrative theorist, this would be more complicated. But as a student, what I would say is plot is one kind of narrative invention. So is there a unique kind of plot or plot device? Character is another, is the second. Is there a unique kind of character here you've never seen before? Story world is the third. And so that's the kind of imaginative space you enter when you enter the, the story universe. So is there a unique way in which that world imagines possibility 
And then the final one is narrator, which is the style or voice in which the story is told. It's kind of the lens of the camera. And so maybe there's an invention in that. So by working backwards from the effect to one of those kinds of four zones of invention, you can then identify the technology at the bottom of the effect and then take it and steal it and tweak it and use it yourself. I need you. I just uh, wrote a, uh, my, for my second children's book. I'm going to have to call you up and see if you can read it for me to make sure I'm like doing, you know, the, the Angus Fletcher stuff. Um, so to be or not to be, uh, you know, uh, evolving Hamlet, bunch of your stuff, but more specifically, like what would you do with this line with your students? So, um, to be or not to be is an interesting uh, uh, moment in Shakespeare because it's actually the invention of a literary technology that we now call the soliloquy. And the soliloquy is not just somebody talking at length. That's actually a monologue. A monologue had been invented before by the Greeks. You can see it in Greek drama. A soliloquy combines a monologue with a dialogue. And a dialogue is typically a conversation between two characters. But in a soliloquy, one character has a conversation with himself. So this character saying, should I do this? Should I do that? To be or not to be? And never before Shakespeare do you see this on the stage. It's just a remarkable, extraordinary invention. What's even more extraordinary is a lot of my research focuses on what the soliloquy can do. And it can actually hack your self-consciousness center in your brain and what it does is it makes you self-aware of Hamlet. So for a moment, you become self-aware of Hamlet, which sounds like a paradox. How can you become self-aware of somebody else? Well, the soliloquy does that. And what happens when you become self-aware of somebody else is you identify with them. You say, part of me is that person. And that's why Hamlet has had this extraordinary effect, which he's made all sorts of people identify with him, even though we have literally nothing in common whatsoever with Hamlet. I mean, he's this Danish prince, who harasses his mother, who randomly murders Polonius, you know, and who engages in all sorts of other sort of, you know, hysterical and idiosyncratic displays, including making a bizarre pun at the moment of his own death. Yet because of the soliloquy, we can identify with him. And this opens up this extraordinary power in literature, which then moves from Shakespeare into the novel. Um, you see it in Robinson Crusoe, you see it in um, Huck Finn, uh, you see it in uh, all sorts of literature um, where characters wrestle with themselves internally and those problems then become our problems and we start to identify with those characters. And in doing so, we discover this remarkable potential, which is never in ancient literature. In ancient literature, we can care about characters or be interested in characters, but we never become Achilles. We never become Aeneas. But in modern literature, you can actually read a novel, and we've all had this experience, and you become the character. For a moment, you, you enter their life. And this is what allows for novels like To Kill a Mockingbird, which has that very famous line at the end about walking in Boo Radley's shoes. Um, and to me, this is this just remarkable achievement in literature, which allows us to cross over the threshold between our mind in somebody else's mind, and that's not to say we literally become that person or we understand everything about them, but it is to say it opens us up to the possibility that there are other people that are also us. And that is the kind of ethical opportunity thrown open by Hamlet, which to me is why it's one of the most special and interesting plays written. 
storytelling science and innovating industry. This kind of gets back to the beginning of our conversation about your work consulting, um, Hollywood's disinterest. And uh, yeah, let's talk about this. Like taking what you learn in the lab of the university space and bringing it into actual practice industry storytelling making. So the first thing I should say is that it's always really messy. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, all, I mean, when you, when you come into Hollywood from, from the outside, you don't realize that basically about 1% of the projects that actually gets kind of worked on ever get made. And that's because it really is a tremendously experimental industry. And there's a lot of creative minds who are trying a lot of new things and who are under a lot of pressure. You don't always see that from the outside because a lot of the work, as I said, is so formulaic. Um, but it's that kind of low success rate in a lot of ways that drives the, the need or the desire for formula because industries and studios are aware that it's already so difficult to do anything that it makes them very, very conservative. So usually I get brought in, and I usually get brought in because a project has failed. And um, they need someone to try and come up with a way to fix it. And the reason that I'm a pretty good fixer of stories is because unlike a lot of writers, I don't believe in a universal way of telling movies. So very famously, um, if you have a career in Hollywood, you'll be forced to read a book such as Save the Cats, or you'll be told something about the hero's journey. And these are these kinds of archetypal narratives that most writers go to and sort of try and impose over stories. And when they work, they can work great. But when they don't work, then people have no idea what to do. So it's sort of like they always have this one tool. When it doesn't work, what do we do? And so that's where narrative theory comes in. Because as you and I know, Frederick, there's just this infinite flexibility in theory. And what you can do is you can arrive and you can say, oh, well, what if instead of telling a hero's journey, um, what if you told the story of two heroes? And uh, what if they didn't actually go on a journey? <laughs> what if they did something else? And you can start to kind of flex and, and come up with creative ways. One of my favorite movies is Up, and Up is a great example of a story that has a completely innovative and bizarre structure. Um, and you know, I was very privileged to kind of meet and kind of work with some of the people at Pixar who helped kind of develop that story, and they're all just very creative and innovative thinkers. And the other thing that I often get hired to do is identify stories that haven't been told before. So I often get given, you know, 500 novels and get told, okay, pick one that could actually work. Um, find a different story. And again, this is where I think a lot of the skills that we have as narrative theorists is helpful because instead of looking for the same thing, which is kind of what a lot of people in Hollywood are always doing, we're actually looking for the thing that's different and unique and special. And so a lot of times I can walk in people's office with a novel and put it on their desk and they can say, well, you know, I've read that novel. I don't get it. I say, well, look, if you look here on page 336, there's this very interesting thing. And then they'll say, oh, yes, that is actually very interesting. And I say, well, I think that actually could be the beginning of something. So that's how a lot of my work is, basically fixing other people's problems or trying to kind of wedge in new ideas. Is there an example? Uh, so let's just really quickly, like, why is Up your favorite? So up, my, up is my sort of my favorite movie for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, I just have a kind of attachment to some of the people who are, who are involved in it. And I think it's just a sort of natural human thing that when you work with people, you're always sort of more emotionally connected to things. But one of the things I like most about Up is it's a great example of reverse engineering. The, the first scene of Up, which is this just, I won't ruin it if, 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 if your viewers haven't seen it, but they should go watch it. 
um, is just heartbreaking. It's in you know five, six, eight minutes. I can't remember how long it is. Just breaks your heart um, in a beautiful way that uh, I had never experienced animated movie telling do before. And what's extraordinary about it is that sequence was the last part of the movie to be created because Pixar also uses this technique of reverse engineering. It comes to them from Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs used reverse engineering to, he didn't literally invent the computer mouse and those things they had sort of been invented before. Um, but he saw their potential because he was interested in user experience. He was interested in his audience. He was interested in working backwards um, from function to form. And a lot of that ethos ended up among the engineers at Pixar and they reverse built up. And the result of that reverse building was the last thing they made was that opening scene and they made it to connect us, the audience with this story. And so for me, it's just, just a remarkable example of the power of this very simple method of saying, what do I want to do to my audience? Now let's throw out all my preconceptions about what a story should be and just find a way to create from scratch that experience. And of course, the result is innovation. Love it. I love up as well. Now I know why. So what's next for Angus Fletcher? And I know that you have a new book that's about to be uh, dropped this summer, I believe. Yeah, um, so I'm doing a book for Simon Schuster, which is a little bit unusual for an academic because, um, you know, it's a book without footnotes. And um, it's a book where I have to make a lot of big claims without necessarily putting all the data in behind those claims, which is a little bit terrifying. But the idea behind the book is to identify the 25 most important inventions in the history of literature. So basically that idea of reverse engineering, which I just explained, I sort of apply that to all of literature, um, starting with our earliest known inventor, a Sumerian poet. Uh, her name was Enheduanna, start with her poetry, and then move all the way through history, um, all the way to Elena Ferrante and Tina Fey. And I identify these inventions uh, and the main point of the book is not just to describe these inventions and kind of talk about the technology, about how they work, but to show how so many of these inventions have a mental health benefit, how so many of them have been used over history to help reduce anxiety, um, even cope with things like post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. It's interesting. Scientists have recently realized that there are two types of PTSD. And when you go back to the history of literature, you realize that authors realized that almost 2,000 years ago and have developed inventions for coping with both. So there's all these just enormous mental health benefits. And beyond the mental health, there's also mental well-being. Mental well-being are those positive feelings on top of just being healthy. So joy, love, curiosity. And the Library of Literature is just filled with these remarkable, simple inventions just all over your bookshelf for giving you that little up. Uh, so that's what the book is about. It's meant to be a kind of handbook um, to reading literature like a narrative theorist, um, if you're just a member of the everyday, and, and seeing how useful uh, literature can be. So it's not this sort of distant thing. Um, it's right there, ready to be accessed, and ready to change your life in the most positive and extraordinary ways. I imagine you have other projects, uh, industry consulting, more books, anything you want to share? 
Well, um, right now, probably the uh, the project I'm I'm having the most fun on is a TV show I'm doing for Colin Callender, who is the the genius behind HBO Independence and also um, a lot of the Harry Potter movies. And uh, we have an idea for a TV show, which is basically about how stories can encourage new stories in our audience. So we've filled the TV show itself. If you just watch this TV show, the idea that we have is if you just watch this TV show, it will help unlock your own kind of imaginative storytelling potential. It will make you want to tell uh, more creative, more unique stories. So that's been really fun because um, uh, Colin's team at at Playground is is just very open-minded and very experimental. And it's been a chance to actually, for one of the first times in my life, not just serve as a consultant, but actually bake narrative theory into the bottom of a TV show. So um, there's a lot of, so far, interest and enthusiasm behind it. Uh, we actually have uh, uh, a studio, um, WIP, which is run by Nea Bong, who is uh, uh, sort of um, well-known for doing all of our Shonda Rhimes' shows. Um, she's our... our our network execs. So we just have a lot of amazing people involved, a lot of amazing storytellers involved. And I have my fingers crossed that uh, it actually makes it to a screen sometime. I'm really excited for that, uh, Angus, like I am for all of your work. And well, thank you so much for uh, joining me and sharing a little bit of your story and why storytelling science matters. Thank you, Angus. Well, thank you. As you know, Frederick, you've revolutionized my life and you've made it possible for me to do a lot of things that I've done. So I really appreciate the opportunity and I thank you for taking the time to interview me. 